It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. It's true. They did succeed in the first part of their plan. They wrote a genuinely terrible novel. But... What self-respecting book publisher would actually publish this? ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and sonic strip teases you'll find most revealing. People call strippers, they're nothing but a bunch of freaks, but they're just jealous. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I think at 100, you can be sexy. You know, I don't think sex is, like, geared just for 20, 30, 40, 50-year-olds. Jeez, I think, I guess, can go on and on and on and on. For many years, we've organized ReSound around themes. But after more than 250 episodes, we're ready for something new. And we think you will be, too. So out go the themes. Instead, it's just stuff we love. And that's what we're going to do from now on. That leaves lots of room for new things, surprises, experiments, and everything else Third Coast is into right now. We hope you'll enjoy ReSound 2.0. Now, to get you in the right frame of mind for our first story, think Mad Men. Three martini lunches, men in fedoras, women in aprons, and cigarette smoke everywhere. Also popular, cheap paperbacks tucked into the pockets of commuters, the purses of homemakers, and bedside tables everywhere. And the most popular were the steamiest, the bodice rippers, if you will. Here is an astonishing story behind one of the unlikely bestsellers of the day, Naked Came the Stranger. And just a word of warning, this story contains some adult content. It all started in 1966 in this bar in Garden City, Long Island called The Sulky. Which was a place where you could listen to music, have a drink, dance. That's Marilyn Berger. She was the diplomatic correspondent at Newsday, the daily newspaper of Long Island. Back then, many of her co-workers would retire each night to the Sulky, including a 33-year-old columnist named Mike McGrady. Gin mills that year were filled with writers anesthetizing themselves against the harsh new realities of their profession. McGrady died in 2012. In 1970, he wrote a memoir about this period, read here by actor Greg Tannen. To be a serious writer in the year 1966 was also to be a serious drinker. 
they had a piano bar, you know, and there were some attractive women who hung out there. That's Harvey Aronson. He was a columnist at Newsday. I remember once I drank champagne out of a secretary's shoe and um, told everybody that I was getting um, athlete's foot of the mouth. And they'd be up drinking in this place. George Vesey was Newsday's sports reporter. And then people would talk, and all the, the hair was let down. and uh, They were discussing the, the status of American literature. That's Tony Insolia. He was the editor for Newsday for over 30 years. Stanley Green was the day news editor. Mike used to complain about uh, books like uh, Harold Robbins and uh, Jackie Suzanne. I was appalled by the kind of books making enormous successes. Look at the garbage that gets printed. That's when the idea hit him. McGrady thought Suzanne's and Robbins' books were schlock, but they were selling millions of copies. So what if you actually tried to write a preposterously bad erotic novel? Would it be just as successful? Everyone at Newsday could do one chapter. We would each write about one specific perversion, and we put them all together. We could write the whole thing in a week. And what came out of it was a uh, plan for a uh, writing the worst bestseller in the world. <laughs> he said, we'll make a lot of money. I said, we're not going to make any money. But I thought we'd have a lot of fun. So McGrady got home from the bar that night poured himself a nightcap, and typed a memo to his co-workers. You are hereby officially invited to become the co-author of a best-selling novel. There will be an unremitting emphasis on sex. Also, true excellence in writing will be quickly blue-penciled into oblivion. He then typed out a plot outline that would connect all the disparate sex scenes. Each chapter will involve Miss Jillian Blake, homewrecker. As the book opens, she learns that her husband, William, has been conducting an affair. She is unfaithful at first to even the score. She is unfaithful for a while because she enjoys it. She is unfaithful finally because she makes it a goal to destroy the seemingly happy marriages that surround her. The next day, McGrady circulated the memo in the Newsday office. I came in late at night and I found a note in my mailbox. George Vesey took the memo home. He decided to write his chapter while he was supposed to be doing yard work. So, yeah, I, mowers would have been on my mind. And I, uh, you know, I typed it out in half an hour. Morton Earbrow found himself staring, staring hard at her slim, exciting face, then staring hard at her slim, exciting body. Her arms were slim and exciting, too. The mower is in the garage she said. She had removed the belt to his Bermuda shorts, and then, without words, they merged. In the dark, in the cool darkness, they communicated. I remember using the word communicated a lot, which is kind of a stupid word for, for making love, but that's, that's what I was up to. Faster and faster they communicated, harder and harder. Fingers and nails on skin, teeth on skin, then great shudders of total communication. They came apart and rested in the dark. He said, I'd forgotten there was more to life than mowing the lawn. Three weeks later, a total of 24 Newsday writers, 20 men and four women, sent in a chapter. A few of the submissions were poetic, sophisticated, intelligent. In other words, unacceptable. Some of the chapters were much too good. 
and I had to work like hell to make them bad enough to use. You know, it's not easy to write bad. McGrady enlisted one of the writers, Harvey Aronson, to share editing duties. To really write bad is hard, and some of it was just moderately stupid. Together, they downgraded the prose, combined some of the chapters, cut a few submissions, and one chapter that got the axe was Marilyn Berger's. I didn't make the cut, and my sister said, well, it was obviously too well written, and my mother said it wasn't sexy enough. I think that may be the first time I heard my mother say sexy. A couple days before I talked to Marilyn, I went to the archives at Columbia University. That's where Mike McGrady donated many of the documents from his career. I made copies of some of the unused chapters from the book. Do you still have your chapter, by the way? No, I was going to ask you if you had it. You know what? I have uh, some of it. Can I see it? So I handed her a copy. And for the first time in over 50 years, she read her submission that was cut from the manuscript. She pressed her body against his, kissing first his fingers, then his arm, his chest, his mouth. They orchestrated a rhythm that he had once said was composed of everything they both had ever known, of surf and swaying trees, of crowded traffic and musty rooms, of sweet flowers and moonlight, of life itself. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think when you read that? I'm amazed. Yeah. I was pretty... No, I wasn't so naive then. I was just sort of younger. Yeah. (laughs) I don't remember a word of it, and I am so happy you've come up with a copy. Meanwhile, for the submissions that did make the cut, Mike and Harvey were working to cobble them together to make them seem like they were all written by one person. So Mike invented a collective pseudonym for all the writers, Penelope Ash. Penelope Ash, as he described to his co-conspirators, was a demure Long Island housewife. And for the title, the Newsday writers scanned through a list of bestsellers and found that the words stranger and naked were frequently used. So they combined the two together to create the title for their opus. Naked came the stranger. There were 14 chapters in the manuscript. One was by a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, Robert Greene. She stepped out of the dress. She was wearing no bra. Pink white peaks rising from the residue of her tan. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Gene Golds. And they reached for each other and found pleasure in gentle caresses. Then faster, quicker, faster, needful. Willoughby was lost in immense billowy softness and riotous colors and roaring winds. He was the sand and the sea and the star-pierced sky. When I asked the writers to name their favorite chapter in the book, it was unanimous. I think that John Cummings' chapter is the funniest. John Cummings, who died in 2016, was an investigative reporter at Newsday. He claimed that when he was a young man in the Marines, he had an adventure with a woman in the Philippines who was a hooker, and that at the climactic moment of their involvement, pressed an ice cube up his rear end, and he wrote this line which is in the book. You can find it exactly. And then Ernie felt it. She shoved the ice in, the big rock candy mountain. Together, like garden snakes, they contorted, moaned, gasped, clenched, and throbbed. Ernie found what Cervantes and Milton had only sought. 
He thought the fillings in his teeth would melt. The imagery was absurd. The perversions were plentiful. It was then that I began to sense that it was going to work. It was actually going to work. It's true. They did succeed in the first part of their plan. They wrote a genuinely terrible novel. But what self-respecting book publisher would actually publish this? I'm a book publisher and proud of it. Yeah, I influenced an entire generation. That's Lyle Stewart speaking in 2005. In the late 60s, he was known for publishing controversial, sexually explicit books like The Art of Erotic Seduction. Mike had previously written about him for a Newsday article. He broached the idea to Lyle Stewart. When Mike told him it was going to be put on, he thought that was great. So we needed somebody to front for the book. There was the name, Penelope Ash. We needed a woman who might fit the name. They decided on Mike's sister-in-law, a 38-year-old writer named Billy Young. After weeks of trying to track her down... Hello? Hi, Billy. How are you? She agreed to talk on the phone. Well, actually, Mike had talked to me about it uh, for a while, and I thought it was one of the most beautiful plans I'd ever heard because I was always impressed with what Orson Welles had done with War of the Worlds, and this was just as good a spoof in my mind. So she went to Lyle Stewart, and he loved her. He thought she'd be great as a front for the book. So that was it, and he said he would publish it. So... Three years after it was just an offhand comment at the Sulky Bar, the book was finally published. For the cover, Lyle Stewart used this stock photo of a kneeling naked woman. And for the author photo, they used a picture of Billy Young. The plan was for Billy to appear on television and radio posing as Penelope Ash. But before she did, Mike and Harvey prepped her for the interviews. So we went to Billy's home. And she said, you know, what should she do? What can she say? And I remember saying to her, tell them that virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, I don't have the faintest idea, but it sounds great. I went into Neiman um, Marcus and I bought a couple of very sexy outfits. And it was, you know, a little more flamboyant than I would personally wear. But it, but it was for a role. And that's what I wore to be in interviews. Penelope Ash, the author. I think this is what the public is buying today, sex. A couple months later, I'm on my patio. I hear her being interviewed on a radio show. Oh, well, you know, virginity is like a Tiffany lamp. I just laid on the ground on the stone patio and just beat my hand on the ground. I knew I could carry it off, but when it came to fruition... The only emotion that I can tell you that I felt, scared. And it was frightening that the whole world knew me now. In those years, I was pretty shy. And that was what cured me. You take the shyest person and you do that a couple of times, and the shyness can be cured. I'm a living example. Across the country, the book sold between 20 and 30,000 copies so far. And they're still going in some areas like hotcakes. Uh, the New York Times printed a uh, one-paragraph dismissive review, unaware that it was a spoof. It would be nice if this book could be judged by its cover, which is easily the best part. In the category of erotic fantasy, this one rates about a C. So the hoax seemed to be fooling everyone, and McGrady and the other writers were in no hurry to disabuse the notion that Penelope Ash and the book were real. But then... Somebody 
uh, tipped off uh, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And so they were asked, please keep it secret because we wanted to see how high it would go. Robert Mayer was a columnist at Newsday. He co-wrote one of the chapters. The Wall Street Journal was adamant. They said they weren't going to hold it. They knew enough about it to go with the story. And right after that, all over the world. I mean, it was insane. Newspapers all across the United States jumped on it. It just went wild. Back in 1966, here at the offices of Newsday, 25 young writers got together and perpetrated a gigantic hoax. Naked Came the Stranger was supposed to have been written by a first-time authorist trying her best. Instead, it turns out it was written by a bunch of other people trying to do their worst. I was sent off to Paris to cover the Vietnam peace talks. And I opened up the International Herald Tribune while I was waiting for the press conference to begin. And there it was. Naked Came the Stranger. The spoof of the century. Walter Cronkite sent a helicopter that landed on the lawn across the street from uh, Newsday's office. And Mike and I and a friend named Lou Schwartz were in the hel- I don't know how Lou got in there, but he was in the helicopter with us and they flew us to New York. A new novel about sex in suburbia was published this week. It seems to be on the way to becoming another instant bestseller. But it is not all it seems to be. As it says, Jacqueline, Suzanne, move over. you got to move way over to make room for 24 men. And that's the way it is, Wednesday, August 6, 1969. And I remember looking down at New York City, and Lou Schwartz said, it's all yours. The city is all yours. <laughs> and on September 1969, the real Penelope Ash made her first national televised appearance on The David Frost Show. Will you now meet the authoress of Naked Came the Stranger, Penelope Ash. They parted the drapes and one after another, I think about 19 of us were there. Uh, We walked through as the author, Penelope Ash. That was was a fun, fun night. We got a lot of applause and Billy came in wandering around the stage with her Russian wolfhound. Why did I bring the dog? I don't have an idea. Maybe I took her because I was so too scared. David Frost told us afterwards that he was scared um, shitless, uh that the wolfhound was going to have an accident during the program. A month later, the book had sold over 90,000 copies. It gradually crept up the New York Times bestseller list, reaching number three, just behind The Love Machine by none other than Jacqueline Suzanne. In other words, the book that was parodying Suzanne was now rivaling her in sales. Mike and Harvey soon got a call. It was Bernard Geis, the man who published Suzanne's Valley of the Dolls. He called us to his office. He said, you guys write a sequel. You're going to make a million dollars. And Mike and I looked at each other, and we both said, no. We did it once. I wasn't going to do it again. Harvey left Newsday to write for New York Magazine. He's proud of his role in Naked Came to Stranger, but not without reservations. I hope that when I go to the great beyond, that is not the defining clause in the first um, paragraph. I mean, it can, be in the, it can be in the obit, but I don't want it in the first paragraph. Robert Mayer was just as conflicted. After all, the hoax had proved that the standards of readers were 
even lower than what Mike had cynically predicted. I didn't know whether I should laugh or cry. The laugh that, that we had pulled off that this hoax had worked great, but also to, uh, to cry at the uh, taste of America that we had exposed. It was a feeling we all shared from time to time. This was how Mike McGrady ended his 1970 memoir. The fun seemed to vanish. Even with the first wild thought that the stunt might work, there was the fear that, yes, the stunt just might work. Later, as it all came to pass, there were always counter-emotions, unexpected misgivings that took the edge off elation. It was too easy. It all went too smoothly. America. You sit there, you plump beauty, still buying neckties from sidewalk sharpies, still guessing which walnut shell contains the pea, still praying along with Elmer Gantry. America, sometimes I worry about you. Naked Came the Stranger, an oral history, was produced by Sam Kim for Studio 360 from PRI. we leave someone we love, if only for the night, we link them to us with our thoughts and our prayers. Love is too precious to lose. One of the most prolific writers of romance novels, and certainly one of the most colorful, was the inimitable British author Barbara Cartland. She was famous for her productivity and popularity, as well as her outsized personality, to say nothing of her perpetual pink chiffon. To Australian radio producer Natalie Kestacher, Barbara Cartland was, well, nothing short of an inspiration. So breathe in and be aware of your posture. I want you to sit just for a minute and have a think about the incredible writers that you know about, the amazing creative people in the world, people that you admire people who have caught your attention. This is Walter. He's a writer, a writing teacher and a Buddhist. He combines meditation techniques with his teaching instruction. Oh, and he also owns a hairdressing salon in Saigon. Is there someone in particular that you admire? Maybe one or two people. Someone whose life or work you'd like to emulate in some way. Just sit for a minute and see what names and faces come through. I'm here with a room full of serious-looking writing students. We're all hoping that Walter will help make our creative juices flow. We take notes, we listen, we focus on our breath. And when you're ready, I'd like you to pick up your pens and write down the names of a couple of those people. People that you would like to be, whose careers you'd like to have. There's only one writer whose career I've ever really been drawn to, and it had nothing to do with her writing or her genre, which was romance. I prefer writing sassy chiclet myself. It was her lifestyle that attracted me, or at least the way it was portrayed in those magazines at the hairdressers. In every photo, she always looked ancient, but totally in command, and always surrounded by dogs and personal secretaries. 
and she's in the Guinness Book of Records for her output. More than 720 books in over 38 languages. And she put out an album of love songs when she was nearly 80. Oh yes, I'd love to have a career like that. A career I could grow into and grow old in. Not like my current career, where I feel that I need to be younger and perkier than I've ever been. It has a very pink and gold cover and shows a very pink and gold lady. Secretaries work in shifts to keep up with her quite monumental output. In fact, she's that formidable romantic novelist Barbara Cartland. Five hundred and... 56 men have asked me to be their wives. Become that writer you most admire. Become that writer. I'll be loving you. My dogs sit with me, my white Pekingese, who's been with me for some time, and they lie there and they never move. I say, how many words? And they jump to their feet screaming because they know that's the end of the chapter. When it was my turn to share, I said, Barbara Cartland, I love that she always had dogs around her, particularly Pekingese. Well, you know, those fluffy Pekingese dogs have quite a literary pedigree. P.G. Woodhouse, another very prolific author, was a great fan of the Pekingese. He thought that... To lead a good life, you just needed a nice wife, a library, and a Pekingese on your lap. So perhaps you're following in the footsteps of some greats. I was encouraged, and in the weeks that followed, I invited the muse, or in this case Barbara Cartland, into my life in whatever way was feasible. The first thing I did was adopt a dog. Unfortunately, my partner wouldn't agree to a Pekingese... No, no. They're kind of ugly, disgusting and aggressive and they constantly struggle to breathe. No way we are getting one of those. So I had to be satisfied with a rather aloof silky terrier. I read Barbara's biography and listened to her album and took note of all her health and beauty tips. After all, she did live and write till she was well into her late 90s. She was always most emphatic about the benefits of honey and vitamins and of avoiding general anaesthetic, warning that it particularly affected women over the age of 50. Wiped out a quarter of their brains, she claimed. One thing you must never, never, never take is, is any form of sedative. Not even one aspirin affects you. And like Barbara, I started to dress for success. No writing in tracksuit pants or pyjamas and no more ugly flat shoes. But most importantly, I started to write. So how do you actually dictate? Are you lying down or... or no, I, I sit in the... You also see it. I sit on the sofa with my legs up. I did feel a bit mean leaving after the most amazing sex I could remember ever having had. The dog sits beside me and the sexist sits behind me so I don't see her. She's very quiet. I let my mind linger over some of the more luscious memories of the places that Richard's tongue had visited. A white rug over my legs and a hot water bottle because I find that when I'm constantly very hot my feet get cold. We both collapsed in blissed out exhaustion but I hadn't wanted to stay. Barbara had been the queen of the romance novel and I would be the queen of chiclet. 
It was all going well until I noticed something was happening to my feet. Something that had started happening only since I'd thrown away my Birkenstocks and runners. I consulted my mother, an 82-year-old who knows all there is to know about sore feet. If anyone needed a bunionectomy, it's you. You could end up being crippled. This toe will come all the way over here. So they've got to be straightened out. Little bones in your toes will have to come out. I wasn't too worried about the bunionectomy. The recovery period required would give me more time to focus on my writing. There was just one little thing I forgot. One thing you must never, never, never take is, is any form of um, sedative, 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 sedative. Now just count backwards from ten. Nine, eight, seven, six, secretary holding my hand. Who did he think he was? I wanted my Pekingese. Natalie, darling, we don't have Pekingese. We have a silky terrier. Oh, you're just coming out of anesthetic. That's why you're a bit confused. Anesthetic? What was he talking about? My attitude to sedation and general anesthetic is well documented. Don't you remember? You had a general anesthetic. For a bunionectomy, you had big bunions and you came here to have them operated on. Anesthetic? No, 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 no. Over the next few days, I had a lot of problems with that secretary. He refused to take notes, he hid all my high heels, and he even made passes at me. But the real crunch came when he insisted on bringing me an aloof, silky terrier whenever I demanded to see my Pekingese. He finally capitulated when I threatened him with dismissal. You want your Pekingese? I'll bring you your Pekingese. Just don't say I didn't warn you. That afternoon, he crept into the house and shouted, Barbara! We are home! Look who's here! Your Pekingese! Okay, so you get it. I'm back, and I no longer think I'm Barbara Cartland. Is there any kind of moral or purpose to this story? Yes, there is. Don't be too quick to embrace the merits of meditation or of inviting in the muse. Always wear comfortable shoes, avoid general anaesthetic and steer clear of Pekingese dogs if you want to keep living the dream. Good night, sweetheart. Good night. Becoming Barbara was produced by Natalie Kestacher for Shortcuts on BBC Radio 4. 
I am 75 years old. I still dance. I still feel sexy. Coming up after the break, when you think of folks in their golden years, you may think about shuffleboard and mahjong, but those are pastimes for the mild-mannered. I want you to think bikinis, boas, and tassels swinging in synchronous circles, a place where your age on stage makes no difference whatsoever. But I'm pretty sure with the right man, I will give him a hell of a time. Curtain up in about a minute. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The second the curtains opened, her entire back just straightened, and it was as if the 24-year-old ghost of her was pulling her out on stage. Some stories are absolutely crying out to be told on the radio. This next feature is one of them. Could it be told in film or print? Of course. But one leaves nothing to the imagination, the other leaves everything to the imagination. No, the sweet spot for visual storytelling on the radio is when Matt Frazier, a disabled actor and burlesque performer himself, takes us to Vegas to brush elbows, and God knows what else, with women who were once titans of the tees. And now they're back in the footlights. Some of the content in this next story may be inappropriate for younger or more sensitive listeners. Can I ask you one specific question? Mm -hmm. That time, that first time after 31 years that you performed, what did it feel like when you got on stage? Exciting. Terrific. I mean, when, when I got the standing ovations, I said, oh my God, I'm back. You haven't seen striptease until you've seen one of the legends. To see these incredible women with their walkers and their canes and their shaky little footsteps going onto stage and stripping, it's extraordinary. I don't feel almost 80. I still feel more like I'm in my 30s or 40s. When you see someone in their 70s shake it like they used to make a lot of money shaking it, it gives you hope for the future of your sexuality. You have never lived until you become a part of burlesque. It's a true tribe. For me, it all started when I was 11 years old, in London's West End. 
My dad's boyfriend was in the chorus of the musical Gypsy, which was about the stripper Gypsy Rose Lee. You might remember the song, You Gotta Get a Gimmick If You Wanna Get Ahead. Night after night, I sat in the dressing room of the Victoria Palace Theatre, mesmerised by all these sassy, brassy women. And that was my first brush with burlesque in 1973. Fast forward to 30 years later, in London's East End, and I'm hosting neo-burlesque nights at the Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. Shall we begin? Soon, I'm emceeing and performing on both sides of the Atlantic. I win Best Male Striptease Artist at the UK Erotic Awards. Thank you so very much. I create and franchise Crip Tease, a burlesque show that celebrates disabled bodies. And now, ladies and gentlemen, and those in between, we have an international... I even get married to an internationally acclaimed neo-burlesque star. Okay, you can probably tell that I'm getting really into this whole burlesque thing. But in 2010, I experienced something that totally blew my mind. I went to Las Vegas to the Burlesque Hall of Fame, which takes place every year over a long weekend, and where the gala event is the Titans of Teas reunion. These are the legends of burlesque. Dozens of women in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who come out of retirement and get back up on stage. I was like, ooh, Vegas, I'm English. You know, I was like, oh my God, I'm in Vegas. But everyone's like, no, you have to see the legends. And they told me about how it was moving to watch them and I'm trying to go with it. But inside thinking, really? A bunch of old ladies on stage? Isn't it a bit, ugh, isn't it a bit tacky and weird and embarrassing? And of course... I suppose people have said that about me. You must go and see Matt. He's a really good disabled performer and secretly people are thinking, oh God, I'm going to have to bring all my liberal baggage to that one. And I guess I was guilty of the same thing in my own way, of ageism and what have you. Sexism and ageism in that way. Um, And the second I saw one of these women, I watched her body transform before her mind. Her body goes, oh yeah, we're on one of these stripper stages. I know what to do. And just started doing the walk and doing the hips and doing the bump. And the face came with it after a while. And it was profoundly moving to watch a body inhabit its former self and its former glory, yet with the facade of degradation on it. To transcend that and the inner essence come out and coat the entire room with its glory. It was truly mesmerising. Now, you're probably listening to this still thinking what I was thinking. It's old women taking their clothes off And it's true. For most people, the thought of seeing that instills fear and dread, even for the most supposedly liberal-minded of us. Of course, this is the radio. You're not going to see it. But I hope you'll stay and listen. The Burlesque Hall of Fame is amazing. This is my wife, Julie Atlas-Muse, former Queen of Burlesque, a legend in the making. She knows this world inside out, so she's going to be our expert guide. It's a whole bunch of crazy American broads, super fun, super happy, naked ladies from 18 to 80, all coming together for one weekend to have a party. And there is a lot of intellectual stuff to gnaw on. 
underneath all that glitz and glamour. But you just have to stay a while. I mean, it's like watching a car crash. You just cannot take your eyes away. It's fabulous. And here we are in the heart of the baking hot sun of Nevada, about to enter the Orleans Casino Hotel. Uh, like most of the hotels in Las Vegas, it's a casino and a hotel. You can't even find reception. We're walking in to, through the point. The first thing you see is thousands of gaming machines and people studiously feeding them money, dressed in their, you know, not particularly designery clothes. There's rather a lot of flip-flops about, if you know what I mean. Uh, some of them are smoking. Uh, most of them are drinking. It's actually 10 in the morning, but it could be any time of the day because this stuff happens 24 hours a day. It never stops. And it's here that the royalty, the glitterati, the fans, the producers, and the makers of all shows to do with things burlesque converge for annual Burlesque Hall of Fame weekend. Backstage at rehearsals, I meet one of the living legends, Isis Starr, who's now in her late 60s. She's performed all over the world, including at the Moulin Rouge in Paris and London's Raymond Review Bar. She's even been a dancer on Top of the Pops. I stopped working between 41 and 54. I thought I wanted to retire, and then I heard about the Burlesque Hall of Fame, and it was like, that's what I wanted, because when I started stripping, the movie Gypsy was my influence, and I practiced my bumps and my grinds, and I took them to ballet class where they were not appreciated, and I was asked to leave. But I always wanted to do burlesque, and there was no shows anymore. There weren't shows in around. Yeah, the striptease was get out of your clothes in a minute and a half and be naked and then, you know, get, get sexy. I don't, I've never thought of myself as sexy, but I do think of myself as incredibly sensual. And for me, there's a big difference. You know, I've never worked blue. I've never done crotch shots. No, no. Um, but I will bend over with a feather between my legs and make you wish you could see what, what was there. My name is Melanie Marinka Hunter. I am 75 years old. I still dance. I still feeling sexy. I feel wonderful. I think that age is just a number. Okay, my body is not what it was. I have health problems now that come with age. But I'm pretty sure with the right man, I will give him a hell of a time. So... Right now on stage uh, for the tech technical rehearsal, Marinka, the world-famous Marinka, star of all that jazz and other films, is, is on stage teching. Oh, here it comes. Go, Marinka! The curtain, the curtain rises on Marinka, walking through, looking a million dollars. They've got this wonderful old style, the old legends. They don't come on stage and, like, immediately start nailing the theme during the beginning, middle and end of their story and start stripping. They spend the first five minutes walking around, waving their arms around and, and showing off their costume. Well, waving your arms around, but apparently it was very, how do you say it, uh, lewd to show the palms of your hand. These are na naked ladies, <laughs> but you can't show the palms of your hand. <laughs> 
Julie and I watch Marinka rehearse a routine that lasts for seven minutes, incorporates two pieces of music, and gets pretty energetic. Everything's jiggling a little bit. Up, oh, and now she's grinding. Grinding means taking your pelvis and really just moving it around in a circle as if you were grinding flour with your pubic bone. Oh, she touched the floor. She did a little bit of the African dance. She looks like she's on the prowl. Oh, honey, she's going to the curtain. Yeah, yeah, here comes the curtain. Ah, she's got the curtain in between her legs. And she is humping that curtain. Yep, there she goes. Uh-huh. That curtain should give her $50 after that, man. And that's just the rehearsal. Listen to the reaction when she's doing it for real. I'm 75 now, and I started when I was 21. It was a lot of restrictions in my day. For example, the theaters had it two lights. One was red and one was green. When it was on the cover in the audience, the red will go off. So you mean when there was an undercover cop in the audience? Yes. You had a, a warning light backstage? Or but, yeah, immediately the red light will go up. That means you have to be careful your movements, don't move your gistry, be sure you're not showing too much. And so how did they know? There was a plainclothes undercover cop in the Most house. Most of these owners have connections with the police. I guess they have to if they want to keep their venue open, huh? At the time, yes. At the time, it was another America. Mm. So everything was who you know and how much you pay. Did you ever find yourself working in mob houses, uh, mafia? Y- yes, yes. They were some nightclubs owned by mafia. But I love working for them. They give you protection. They give you the money you want. Yes, I did like them. And you always got treated well? I always did, yeah. I know that this whole generation of women, whereas they had a lot of social power, their economic power, they put in the hands of men. And that was the age, you know, in the 1950s, men took care of the finances and also screwed over a whole bunch of strippers. Tempest Storm, she's uh, the face of old-fashioned burlesque. Her face and image are on T-shirts. I don't know if she can afford groceries right now. It's put these women who earned a lot of money into real financial bad situations because they weren't in control of their money and they didn't want to be in control of their money. It's a generational gender thing. It is that. Um, but the generational thing works in all the ways as well because I'm disabled and I've got little arms. I'm a thalidomide victim with inwardly pointing uh, hands like a foot off a leg. And, for example, one unnamed legend took one look at me and went, See, you got a gimmick. You got something you can sell right there without a shred of, like, rights or, you know, irony or any of those things. She just saw the moneymakers. And as burlesque, and, you know, I do a lot of sideshow and I have done, and I think there are a lot of similarities between a disabled person working in a sideshow and a woman being a burlesque artist. My name is Laurie Labadi, and I'm an exotic dancer, and I've been retired since 1980s. And I lived a very good life. I loved the life I live and I lived the life I love. 
So, Lottie, what was it like when you started out? What year did you start? I started in 1954. So that was a... A very different America. Yes, no. yes, yes. It was a sort of a selfish America. It's kind of hard to imagine what it must have been like for an African-American uh, entertainer yeah. in, in the kind of old segregated America that we hear about. Right. Um, were you at the beginning of the liberated era or were you at the tail end of the bad stuff? Or? There were places that, say, for instance, in Texas, you would have to go to the back door and come into the club. You'd have to go in the back door, but the white performers would go in the front door? Front door. And they, they would have a couple of white uh, performers uh, with the band, and they would put a sheet so that the band couldn't see the whites. Well, on the stage? On stage. And while so I was right. Guy, like, drawing the curtain to yeah, and fro, yeah. depending on the color of the artist. That's right. That sounds so ridiculous to us. <laughs> There's no sense in it. Lottie the Body Graves is now well into her 80s. Over the years, she's co-starred with many of the greats, Billie Holiday, Marvin Gaye, The Supremes, The Four Tops. She's well-respected in her native Detroit. Lottie doesn't need to fly out to Las Vegas for the burlesque hall of fame. She comes because she wants to. The definition of a legend is someone who has nothing left to prove and everything to give. That's the voice of world-famous Bob. She's one of the current stars of Neo Burlesque, and here she's been hosting the Living Legends Night for the last nine years. I'll never forget Jean Idell, 92-year-old, performed for the first time in over three decades, and her handsome sons in their military outfits, so proud of their mother, and so filled with this dignity as they escorted her backstage. She's 92. <clears throat> she's standing behind the curtain. A tiny bit, you know, slumped over a little bit with the age of the night, I would say more than her. And the second the curtains opened, her entire back just straightened and her breasts pointed straight up to the balcony. And it was as if the 24-year-old ghost of her was pulling her out on stage. And I get goosebumps every time I see that. And for me, these women are redefining what it means to be a woman what it means to age in our society, and what it means to be a sexual and vivacious creature, regardless of age. And in our society that devalues women as they age, they've given me new hope. I think at 100, you can be sexy, you know? I don't think sex is, like, geared just for 20, 30, 40, 50-year-olds. Jeez, I think, I guess, can go on and on and on and on. Somebody can get aroused somehow. I, I would imagine. I think a lot of those older women are very sexually attractive. That's April March, who, just a couple of weeks before her 80th birthday, is perhaps the biggest star of the show when she receives the top award of the night. Legend of the Year 2015, April March. Amongst the hundreds of people in the audience is April's granddaughter, Nicole. I think she's amazing. I mean, she basically raised me growing up, and I've watched her. I've, I've seen. I've just. I know so much history of her past and what she lived. And to see her on stage, this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've seen her on stage. It's just amazing. It's such an incredible experience. And you don't feel any sense of I don't know. Um, 
grand, granddaughter shame or you know that kind of thing that we imagine family members might feel I'm very proud of my grandmother and I've always accepted her love for burlesque and I accept her for who she is my friends are just in amazement about this they think it's the coolest thing that wow your grandma is a burlesque legend a star oh my goodness uh, they just can't believe it we had the pleasure of talking to your granddaughter. Yes, she was thrilled. I think her husband is more prudish, and I think it's nice that Nicole was here by herself because normally, like he'd say, Nicole, bedtime, 10 o'clock, you know, and she really had a good time. My mother, I didn't live much with my mother. My grandparents raised me. And they were pretty strict with me. I guess that's why I flew the coop early. My mother was liberal. I think I took after my mother. My mother was married five times. And she and my father were divorced when I was four years old. And my father never approved. And when my father died, my stepmother never contacted me for three years later. And she said that my father was very disappointed in me. Yeah. So it's a great full circle then that your granddaughter. Oh, my granddaughter. So yes, yes. We had a crazy show last night. Everyone's a little bit tired. Um, now we're going into the room, the burlesque bizarre room, where there's an array of obviously glitter, feather boas, fascinators, booty shorts. All the paraphernalia of sort of vintage dress and modern striptease, as you can hear, a mostly female cacophony um, surrounds us because fundamentally this is a women's movement and it's for women, by women, most of the time. Women who want to be glamorous on their own terms. Hi there. I'm waving at people who I've met, coming up and talking to people. I'm great, thank you. Okay, that's, this is for the BBC where we're, we're doing a Radio 4 documentary on the legends. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's fantastic here because they definitely deserve it. We couldn't be here if they weren't around to make things right for us. That's why they should be treated like gold. Also in the burlesque bazaar room, around 20 of the legends themselves are seated behind two long tables. They're enticing me, and indeed anyone, to buy a printed portrait. $20 for a classic 10 by 8 signed photograph with a personal dedication. Uh, would you sign it for me? Can I sign it to Matt? Yes, please. M-A-T, one T. Okay, just to Matt, then. To Matt with anything you might care to say. Uh, you've been so great wherever we've met, baby. Yeah. Thank you for last night. You know, whatever you want to say. <laughs> In among the crowds, I meet Indigo Blue, who's still far too young to be a legend, but as a former queen of burlesque, she has the credentials. The first time that I saw the Legends perform at the Burlesque Hall of Fame, it changed absolutely everything for me. It made me feel like there was a future for me as a dancer, as a woman, as a feminist, as a sexual being. And in terms of feminism, I guess a lot of these women and you might have different ideas of what feminism means. How is this feminist? Well, as a third wave feminist, for me, this is about women having the ability to do whatever they wish to do with their bodies. So, and for me, feminism is humanism, truly. It's the celebration of the body of personhood. It's called feminism because women aren't necessarily 
recognized as equals. But it's truly humanism. Hey there, what's your name? I'm Sugar Cheeks. Hey, Sugar Cheeks. Um, I see you're clutching your hot, valuable 10 by 8. Who have you got there? This is Suzette. And why did you pick Suzette's picture? Because she's been checking me out the entire convention. <laughs> what do you... Let's talk about the legends. What do you think about the legends when you see a woman in her 70s shaking it, grinding it, bumping it, and really showing her sexuality? What does that do to you? makes me really inspired to want to be old and amazing just like them. Um, I spent the last two days with Tony Elling, and she was telling me how she doesn't even understand why she's here, why she's so revered amongst our peers. And I sat there and I told her, I was like, do you know that you opened the door for girls like me, girls of color or of different ethnicities? You made us not want to be in the background. You made us want to be in the front line. I told her, I was like, you inspired me to want to fight for that and not take all the other girls that are skinny or that are white, blonde, beautiful, tall, that that's not the norm that I could also be part of the norm. And when I told her that, she cried. <laughs> and she was like, you just made my whole weekend. One thing that really strikes me is the incredible respect that the new generation of burlesque artists have for the legends. In the run-up to the Hall of Fame weekend, younger performers stage fundraising nights so that the older stars can afford to get here. And this respect runs both ways. Some of these acts that you see are superb. I think burlesque, it's really surprised me coming back like it has. I think it's better. There's so many young, talented performers that need for you to see them. Thank God that theaters are opening up for burlesque throughout the United States again. <laughs> yeah. A woman has wheeled on stage in her electric scooter. It's not often, is it, that you see a lady with white hair in an electric scooter about to do her technical rehearsal for a striptease routine. <laughs> it's, come on, it's pretty, pretty strange for most people. I, I applaud it heartily. I mean, I came up through the ranks of disability arts and I'm used to people with weird different bodies wobbling and falling and wheeling and dribbling and doing all that stuff. It's what I'm used to, you know. But the world of burlesque and striptease is, is not... I suppose traditionally used to people with infirmities and impairments rocking it. Some of the legends um, have fallen down on stage. Uh, Tempest Storm several years ago broke her hip in front of all of us. What, what was it like? Did the whole audience go quiet? Uh, the whole audience had a collective gasp of horror. The music continued for a little while and then it stopped. <gasps> She, was, she fell downstage of the curtain, uh, in front of the curtain, so when they closed the curtain, she was still, still there. She was still there. The stretcher came after a while. All in front of everybody? I all, mean, what, all in front of everybody. Oh, my God, that must have been horrific. It was something that was so intense to watch that I'm sure when I die it will flash before my eyes. Thankfully, that story has a happy ending. She was a mistress to Elvis and JFK. Three years after her fall, 84-year-old Tempest Storm is once again back on stage at the Burlesque Hall of Fame. 
and I have the pleasure of introducing her, along with dozens of the living legends, in the Walk of Fame section. She is the youngest music queen of Burlesque. Tempest Storm! I connect with them, these women, in the way that they're outside of performers, which I consider myself to be. They were from a, an art form that was generally considered by polite society to be beneath them. You know, we go in through the back entrance, traditionally, and you know who's never judged me? Who's never ever judged me as a disabled person, as a mutant, as a freak working on stage, who's never judged me for not looking mainstream, are other people who were judged like that. And traditionally, I've always had a lot in common with homeless people, with prostitutes and with strippers because they don't judge me and I don't judge them and we get along fine. People call show people strippers. Uh, they did not but a bunch of freaks. Uh, but they were jealous. They should try putting tape on their butts and get in the mirror <laughs> and make some pasties. <laughs> Well, just in case you don't know what pasties are, you put these gorgeous rum protection over your tits. <laughs> Come out and see us. We love you. Whenever you see us, show and burlesque. Bring the whole family. But leave the old man at home. <laughs> Why do you still do what you do? Well... This is me. I won't be anything without being what I have been. It's been my life. I still got the strength and the energy to do it. I like, I get a kick out of it. This is me. I hope I stay healthy enough and alive. I just gotta stay out of the hospital and not fall and keep my weight kind of down. I've always been April, March, and April, March, I still am. This is the greatest togetherness, family, showbiz, and I hope and pray that we can all see one another next year. Burlesque Legends was produced by Steve Urquhart for Spark Lab Productions. It first appeared on Seriously from BBC Radio 4. Not unlike the burlesque legends, we all have things we want to throw off. Today, Resound throws off its old format. We're wriggling out of the constrictive idea of needing a theme for every show and strutting around with much less on our backs. We play the things we love for you, in all their glory, unabashedly, unapologetically, with a shimmy and a head toss thrown in for good measure. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk with Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. 
You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world. And subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, Resound. All diamonds, no rough. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.